here if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 this evening. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. But before we uh, look at God's Word, let's seek His presence and His grace over our time here this evening. Father, Lord, we come into Your presence today. And Lord, we are going to learn of the great privilege we have through our high priest to come before You that we who have been made a kingdom of priests can come boldly before the throne of grace. And there, Father, we can find acceptance before you in Christ. Father, I pray that uh, as we look at uh, and finish up looking at the the significance of what that priestly work um, does for us as Christ is our great high priest, Lord, may we be moved in our hearts. May you, by your Spirit, burn within us a great desire to to respond to these great truths as your Word instructs us to do. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit. In all things, we are dependent upon you this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we have been, again, looking at these threefold offices when we're going to be finishing up looking at the the priestly work of Christ, and we've established how Christ is our great high priest, how he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he is the one who, who provides a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. Um, and now we've been looking at the implications of those truths for us as believers. What does it mean for us that Christ is our high priest? And we have been looking at this doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. Again, two verses that we've begun every, um, or two passages that we've begun every uh, one of these services as we're looking at this in, I just want to remind us again. 1 Timothy 1, or 2, 5 through 6 tells us, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Time. There is only one mediator between us and the one God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other priest that we are to come to to find acceptance before God. It is solely and completely through Jesus Christ alone. He is the only mediator between God and men. And that establishes that priestly office that Christ holds. But then as a consequence of His priestly office, He redeems us and saves us so that we would be conformed into His own image. And part of that working its way out in our lives is the reality that as Christ is our high priest, we now are priests to God. As Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, You are a chosen race, and being chosen, we now then are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
I was looking back as, as I began this study of looking at the threefold offices, and, and this particular passage sort of stuck out to me as I read it again this afternoon, proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We can look at the glories of Christ as the perfect high priest, and we should proclaim His excellency and compare it to the failures of human priests. And that's what we've done. No priest among men can do what Christ has done. And as a result of that, we then become a royal priesthood. We were once not a people. But now, by God's grace, we are God's people, a nation of priests. Once there was a time when we had not received mercy, but praise God, now we have received that glorious mercy. So these two passages, establishing Christ as the one mediator, the one high priest, and then seeing how He takes those for whom He has redeemed and makes them a kingdom of priests, That's sort of what has been driving what we've been looking at these last several weeks. Now, we talked about, just to quickly review, the need of understanding this doctrine. We talked about how Roman Catholicism exploits this reality and how they they use it to sort of hold over the heads of individuals that they must come not through Christ but through the church and go into the Roman Catholic Church who then provides for them a number of their their leaders in the Roman Catholic Church are not called pastors, they're called priests. And how it's a direct contradiction of what the Scriptures say and it is also a way for them to exploit spiritually people who are looking to find their way to God. The Roman Catholic Church sets itself up as the only way to Christ or the only way to God. And the reality is, is that Christ is the only way to God. And then we saw how today the modern health and wealth gospel and that particular movement is abusing this idea that there are individuals who have been endued with a certain amount of grace and, and that they, you must come to them to receive that grace, whether it be the grace of healing or the grace of prosperity. And, and all those things sort of get tied up so that they end up exploiting the church in very much the same way as the Roman Catholic Church does. We looked at the foundation of the priesthood of all believers. We looked, of course, that we were created to be priests, that Adam and Eve had unrestricted, unfettered, unencumbered uh, fellowship with God in the garden. But when sin came into the picture, instead of running to see God when He came to them in the midst of the day, they ran and hid themselves because they were afraid. But we were created to be priests to God. Sin is that which comes in and distorts and destroys that relationship. And so what we have then is is God provides a pattern for us in giving us human priests. But every human priest is a failure. They're beset with weakness. They Just in their very physicality, not, not to mention the fact that they are still sinners, that they still struggle with sin. Um, nonetheless, the writer of Hebrews focuses just on the physical limitations that they have. And that is the fact that they are beset with weakness and they don't live forever. They eventually will die and another priest will come up. And all of this is pointing to the fact that we cannot be priests on our own. 
That if we seek to come before God on our own to be the mediator ourselves, we don't have what is necessary. And again, I just continue to point back to that being the very way that most people think they're going to stand before God. They think that they're going to be able to stand before God and argue to Him that they had more good deeds than bad deeds so that God would allow them into heaven. And they miss completely the point that they don't even have the right to stand before God as sinners. That God calls us to place our hope not in ourselves or in any other human being, but to place our hope in one human man, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we saw the high priestly office of Christ, and we looked at that. We spent a lot of time looking at the the implications of, of the Melchizedek line and how Christ is even better than that line. And how He has entered into the holy place, not made of hands, the real holy place in heaven, to appear before God, and this is what I love, on our behalf. That really, if you think about that scale illustration that everyone seems to look at, that's already, for the believer in Christ, that's already happened. Because Christ had no sin, His scale was 100% righteousness. And we, by faith, who are united to Him by faith, we have that same hope in and of ourselves through Christ. And then we see that now, being united to Christ by faith, we are a kingdom of priests. And we looked at the various passages, and particularly how this becomes an emphasis in the book of Revelation that the great chorus of those worshiping the Lamb that is standing as though He is slain, He is standing as slain, having made a kingdom of priests out of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. So, again, proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His glorious light. That has been a wondrous thing. But I fear that sometimes we can look at things like this, we can stand in awe at the glories of what Christ has accomplished for us in our salvation, and then we just sort of get stuck there. And we don't move on to understand the implications then of what that means for us. We are all priests before God. If you are here today or if you're listening online and you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. So what? What does that mean then on an everyday basis? And this is where we see the writer of Hebrews challenging us to act based upon the glories of Christ's priestly office. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Look with me there. Therefore, brothers, since or because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since, because we have a great high priest over the house of God, so the glories and the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His glorious light, now let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So there are several things I want us to consider here this evening. We're going to be looking at this passage and then two other passages, Lord willing, uh, this evening. The first, the first implication that we have as priests before God is we have unrestricted access to the Father. We have unrestricted access to the Father. It is with confidence that we draw nigh to our God. Let us, the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What we are called to do is to first draw near. There are actually three commands that the writer of Hebrews calls us to do here. And they are with the, the way that they're translated here are let us. These these are imperative phrases. So it's not that he's sort of suggesting that we do this. He's not that he's saying, oh, this is a good idea. He is commanding us, you must do these things. In light of what Christ has done for us, understanding that his blood gives us access to the very holy place. And again, I don't think we comprehend or grasp the significance of that statement, particularly because we're not in a Jewish society. We don't have the understanding that no one could go to the holy place. In fact, only once a year the high priest would go in. But now the writer of Hebrews is telling us through what Jesus Christ has done, a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, we can come boldly. We can come with full and complete confidence. When Jesus died on the cross and His death was finished, there was an earthquake, the the skies were darkened, and then something happened in the temple. The curtain was torn in two. And here we see the significance of that reality borne out for us because no longer does there need to be a curtain keeping us from God's presence. That curtain has been torn as Christ's flesh has been torn and we can come into the presence of our God. We can come near. Because not only has He provided that way and taken away the curtain, but He also ever lives to make intercession for us as our high priest. Since we have, we possess a great priest over the house of God, the first thing we are to do is to what? Draw near to God. We must draw near to God. Now, these commands, are they given just for a particular subset of Christians? Is is it said that just the pastors are to draw near to God? No. Who is this applied to? Every one of us. Every single one of us through Christ are commanded to draw near to God. 
It is, it is an amazing truth of the new covenant. If you look at the old covenant, the old covenant did not say draw near. The old covenant said stay away for the sake of your families, for the sake of your own health. Stay away. And God demonstrated this over and over and over again. That even those with, with good intentions would be judged if they came near to that which God had forbidden. Think of them as they're carrying the ark through the wilderness. They begin to falter and fall, and, and someone looking, likely out of respect for the ark of the covenant, he reaches out and touches it to hold it up, and what happens? Struck dead. We think of Samuel's sons who bring as priests strange fire before the Lord, and what happens to them? They're struck dead. I'm sorry, that's Eli's sons that did that. Over and over again, the old covenant teaches us, don't come near. Why? Because God was showing us the reason that our sins had separated us from a holy and righteous God, that we could not come near because we were filthy in sin. But notice what the writer here tells us to in verse 22. We draw near... With a true heart and full assurance of faith. Why? Because our hearts are sprinkled what? Clean. Clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I think it's important to note here, first of all, that we draw near with full assurance of faith. There is not to ever be a question in the believer's mind as they come in Christ as to whether or not they will be accepted. We come with full assurance of faith. That if our dependence is truly and completely in Christ, God will accept us. And there is no other reason why God accepts us not based on our goodness, not based on the fact that we came to church on a Sunday evening, not based on the fact that, that we pray and read our Bible every day, not based, based on the fact that we try to be kind and generous to others. None of those things are what give us confidence before the Lord. It is only Christ that gives us confidence before the Lord. And if we are in Christ, then we should come boldly. We should come with full assurance of faith knowing that our bodies have been washed clean from the blood of Christ. You know, it's amazing here the similarities that the author is making between the Old Testament requirement for priests. Remember, we're saying we are all priests. And there were a number of instructions given in the law for priests regarding ritual cleansing. They were to wash themselves in certain ways at certain times. And particularly as the high priest was to go on the Day of Atonement before the Lord, the first thing he did was wash himself. Over and over again, God's showing us the need for cleansing. But notice the cleansing that we have. It is a cleansing through the blood of Christ. It is a cleansing that does not cleanse our outward body, but what does it cleanse? It cleanses us to be sprinkled clean from an evil what? Conscience. From an evil heart. Jeremiah prophesying God's words to the people of Israel. He calls upon them and says, listen, don't wash just your outer appearance, but wash your what? Your heart. 
Wash your heart that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge where? Within you. The cleansing that Christ brings is not an exterior, outward cleansing alone. It doesn't just change our actions. It will change our actions, but it changes our actions because our hearts are transformed. We've been sprinkled clean to have clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Having that wonderful hope should transform how we think. Listen, there is a reality here that I think that Jeremiah is pointing at. He's calling upon Israel and calling upon us to wash our hearts. We need to live every day in the reality of what the blood of Christ has done. That means that we need to choose to live not in the filth of the world, but according to the righteousness of God. It is God's sovereign work within us that cleanses us, but it is our requirement to obey His Word. And then notice what the the struggle is. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Here's the thing about your thought life. Despite what the world may say, there aren't mind readers out there. I don't know what you're thinking. I can't know what's, what are on your thoughts at this moment right now. I can't know what are on your thoughts, what happened earlier today, what will happen this week. I don't know your thoughts. But you know who does? God. He comprehensively knows everything that you are thinking at all times. And so His call is to us as His people, listen, how long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? The blood of Christ has been shed to cleanse you from an evil conscience. So why do you continue to go back in your thoughts to the mud and the dirt and the filth of sin? If we really understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing here and what Jeremiah is calling us to do here, we will recognize that we must continue to cleanse ourselves from unrighteousness. Not seeking full acceptance before God. That only comes through Christ. But seeking to walk and cast off the wicked thoughts that are living within us. As we come with that reality, then there is a wonderful hope. Notice again what he says in verse 22, the very beginning. We are to draw near. And James tells us that there is a consequence of drawing near to God. If we draw near to God, looking to Christ, what does James promise us God will do? Draw near to God and He will what? Draw near to you. Do you see how this is a reversal of what happened in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ran from God. And then because of sin, God ran in one sense from Adam and Eve. He departed and left his, pulled his presence away from mankind. But in Christ, the call is not to flee in fear, but to draw near to God. And what will He do? He promises to draw near to us. 
And again, notice the call. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your what? Your hearts. You double-minded. The work of Christ in, in allowing us to be priests before Him should have an, a clear and unchanging work upon not just our actions, but the very basis of who we are. That's what it means to be transformed by God's grace. Not to transform just our outward actions, but to be changed from the inside out. And the priestly work of Christ gives us that wonderful hope. So we are called to draw near. But secondly, he says in verse 23, we are called to hold fast to the confession of faith. What does it mean to hold fast to our confession of faith? The, the idea is that of being tethered to something or anchored in something. That's why the author of Hebrews is, speaks of how we have a sure and steady anchor of the soul. And that anchor is that Christ has gone into the heavenly places behind the curtain to appear before God on our behalf. We are called here in verse 23 to then, understanding we have that anchor, hold fast to the confession of faith without what? Wavering. Now, this is interesting how he, he brings this up. Again, the, the idea is that as the storms of life come into our path, as we face the difficulties of life, there is a temptation to look to something else for stability. To look, to perhaps say, I'm dealing with financial issues. Boy, if I just had financial wealth, everything would be good. How many times have you said to yourself, um, boy, if, if I just had X amount of dollars, everything would be fine. That is the opposite of putting confidence in Christ. You're putting confidence in riches. We can look at this and apply this to a number of different things. Our... our um, our occupations. We can look at this as, as finding hope in our spouses or in our families or in a number of different things. And, and anytime we put our confidence into something else, we will naturally what? Waver. Because here's the thing. You can be as rich as rich can be and the stock market can come crashing down. You can have all the riches in the world and they can be taken away. Moth and thieves and rust corrupt and steal. We can try to seek hope in our careers, and in a second your company can be sold and everybody laid off. We are to hold fast without wavering. Now why? Why don't we waver when we hold fast looking to Christ? Because Christ who promised is what? Faithful. He does not turn back on His promises. This is the wonderful hope of what we call the immutability of God. What Robert talked about Wednesday evening. God does not change. If He makes a promise, then my hope is that that promise will come to pass. And so we hold fast in the midst of the storms of life, not wavering because we have a faithful high priest, one who will not turn away from us. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and what? Faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the reality is, is, as we looked at, every human priest apart from Christ is beset with weakness. But Christ is not. Christ came in the flesh and He never once acted or thought anything sinful. And so the wonderful hope is that we who are beset with weakness, if we are faithless, He remains what? Faithful. He cannot deny Himself. So we are to... Draw near. We're to hold fast. And then there's one other final thing that we're called to do. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's interesting that these first, two, these first two commands can be worked out very privately. We can draw near to God individually. We can hold fast looking to Christ individually. But notice that, that, that song in Revelation is not a song that you have made a bunch of independent believers priests to God, right? That's not what he says. You have made them a what? Kingdom and priests to God. There is a reality that we are to come together as a congregation, as a community, and we are to exercise this priestly office together. And so we're to consider to stir up one another to love and to good works. This requires encouraging one another, Speaking the hopes of Christ to each other, it at times requires rebuking one another. Seeing someone walking in a way that is not in accordance with a conscience that is cleansed by the blood of Christ and calling that out. Calling them to repent and turn from their sins. Now how do we do this? How do we consider stirring up one another to love and good works if we are not doing what? Meeting together. And that's what he points out. Not neglecting to meet together. It should be one of the most important parts of your week that you come together and join with God's people and meet to worship God together as we come as priests before Him, but also to stir up one another to love and good works. And here is the reality. This is the habit of some. You know, it's, it's nothing new that believers, those who claim and profess faith in Christ, it's nothing new that they fail to come regularly to services. It's nothing new. It was happening in the first century. And it becomes a matter of priorities. What do you prioritize? The call here is to not neglect to meet together, but to encourage one another and then he adds on at the very end, and all the more as you see 
the day drawing near. Here's the thing I worry about sometimes about some believers. They will claim that they have faith in Christ, but they will avoid coming to the assembly of the believers for a number of different reasons. And here's the thing. Guess who you're going to be with for the rest of eternity? Other believers. All the more as you see the day drawing near, as we see the coming of Christ, who is coming soon, coming quickly, it should draw us to find and enjoy fellowship with each other all the more. So, what is the first implication of the priest of all believers? We have unrestricted access to the Father, drawing near, being cleansed by the blood of Christ, holding fast, knowing that Christ is faithful, and then considering how to stir up one another to encourage other priests of God to come before Him. So that's the first Implication. The second is the ministry of reconciliation. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We know these verses well. They are verses that speak very clearly of the, um, the penal substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf. And again, the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. We know that. But now what should that do for us on an everyday basis? Look with me again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to who? To Himself. So what Christ has done as a high priest reconciling us to God now places us in the position of a priest ourselves. Now what are we to do as priests? He has also now given to us a ministry. What is that ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's look at our reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. What does it mean to be reconciled? To not count trespasses against us, but then to entrust us with the message of reconciliation. And so Paul concludes in verse 20, therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through who? Through us. We are to implore others on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of Christ. We stand as priests calling others to become priests through faith in Christ's sacrifice. That is what we are tasked with doing. That is the ministry of reconciliation. We no longer need to see reconciliation through the efforts of men, whether it be our own efforts or the efforts of 
human priests. Who is the one who has reconciled us? God reconciled us in Christ. We can't reconcile ourselves to God. Christ must do it. And as a result of that, we are a new creation. What has happened to the old, old way? The old man, the old ways, they are passed away. Everything has become new. As Peter tells us, we are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and without or without spot. We are called to employ the world on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. It's interesting as um, I've interacted with unbelievers in various different contexts, there's a, a statement I'll hear oftentimes when somebody has something coming up, some big life event. And they'll, they'll say, they'll say, well, maybe, maybe you could put in a good word with the, the big guy for me. I've heard people say that. Maybe you've heard that same thing as well as, as you know, you, hopefully you're living out your, your faith before the world around you. It's recognizable to others that you are living for Christ. And so they'll come to you and say these things. Listen, the proper response to that is not okay. Because what are you doing? You're acting like their priest. You're not their priest. In fact, you're to call them and say, listen, you can ask that yourself if you come and become reconciled to God through Christ. It's an opportunity for us to show them, be reconciled to God through Christ. We need to be preaching and teaching, proclaiming Christ as the only reconciliation between God and man. Again, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So we who have been reconciled, who have become priests to God by God's grace, we are to carry out the ministry of reconciliation by being ambassadors for God, calling people to be reconciled to God in Christ. And the final thing we have as priests is the hope of God's eternal presence. Look with, turn with me to some of the last passages in Scripture. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 20 is the account of the millennial reign of Christ. There is a final rebellion. Satan is defeated. And there is a great white throne Christ is seated upon it, judging the nations according to their deeds, looking at the books, and then there's another book that is opened. And all those that come before the great white throne, they are not in that book because whoever was not found written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are those who have been made priests to God. And so we see in Revelation chapter 21, I'll begin reading in verse 1, but we'll focus particularly on verse 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. The great glory of eternity is not found, and I've mentioned this before, sometimes I say this over and over again, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but it is so important for us to keep in mind. The great glory of eternity is not the pearly gates, the golden streets. It's not the fact that we no longer have disease or, or, or pain. It's not the fact even that we are going to be reunited with loved ones who've gone on before. The great glory of eternity is that we will live physically in the presence of God. His dwelling place is with us. This is why, to some extent, I think Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the down payment of our redemption. Because the Holy Spirit is God. And where does He dwell? In us. And so we have and are able to experience to a tiny bit, a little bit of what that glory will be. But praise God that this day is coming. That we will be able to be in the presence of God eternally. Forever and ever rejoicing in Him. And if you skip down to verses 22 through 23, we see this emphasized again. I saw no temple in the city. You know, it's interesting that today, Jerusalem is defined by, or the success of Jerusalem is defined by the temple. To this day, you can go to Jerusalem and you will see Jewish people at the Wailing Wall, which is what's left of what we believe Herod's temple is. They will, and, and they're there. It's called the Wailing Wall because they're mourning. Why are they mourning? Because the temple is gone. Listen, we were never meant to stick with a temple forever. For in the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You know, it's interesting, the priests of old would minister before the temple. In fact, we see this when, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the tent of meeting that David has set up on Mount Zion. The priests came out of the holy place, and, and once they placed the Ark of the Covenant there, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests, what did they have to do? They had to flee away. They could not minister 
to stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. How different the scene is here. God's glory is filling the temple that He Himself is. And there is no temple from a physical standpoint because God is dwelling with man. No longer do we run from the presence of God, but we live with it eternally. It is our sun and our moon. God's glory gives light and the lamp of the new Jerusalem is the Lamb. Our high priest, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we should yearn for this to be true in our lives. That we should desire more and more that Christ would come and that we would be with Him like this forever. This is the great hope of eternity. And it is a hope that only priests can truly understand. And praise God, by His grace, through Jesus Christ, those who trust in Christ, all of those who trust in Christ, they are all priests to God, a kingdom of priests. So, are you living out these implications of your priesthood? Do you draw near, hold fast, and stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you go about the ministry of reconciliation, seeking to call others to turn from dead works to find hope in Christ alone? And is your great hope for eternity looking to the promise that one day there will be no need of an intercessor, no need of a mediator, but that you will dwell in the presence of God forever? Every believer is a priest. And these are wonderful hopes and responsibilities that we have from God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth we find in it. And we thank you, Father, that we have been made a kingdom of priests to you. Father, may we not take for granted the freedom we have to draw near to you. May we draw near often knowing that we have been changed by the blood of Christ, that we are changed from the inside out. We are cleansed to come into your presence, not a cleansing outwardly, but a cleansing inwardly. Father, may we proclaim the hope of Christ to others. May we be ambassadors for you, seeking that, that others would know the wonderful hope and the ministry of reconciliation in Christ. And Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for the glorious hope that one day we will dwell in Your house forever. That Your presence will be the glory of eternity. 
Father, take these truths, bind them to our hearts, and by your Spirit, change us as we see the significance of our priesthood. Thank you for Christ, our great high priest. We pray all these things in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Again, remember, no Sunday evening service for the next three weeks. And then, Lord willing, January 8th, we'll be back at it again. Thanks so much. Have a great week.